I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew 5, and we will get a Bible to you so that you can look at Matthew 5 with us. That's what these brothers have come forward for. They have Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back. Get their attention if you need a Bible. And that Bible is marked at Matthew 5 so you don't have to fumble around to find it. Matthew chapter 5. A few years ago, columnist David Brooks wrote an article in the Weekly Standard magazine. It was about life in the suburbs among what has been called suburban sprawl. He begins with a story of a man going to a Home Depot and purchasing a grill for his backyard. And he calls this man Patio Man. And he says of him, as Patio Man walks past the empty, handicapped, and expectant mother parking spots toward his own vehicle, Wonderful grill fantasies dance in his imagination. There he is atop the uppermost tier of his multi-level backyard patio outdoor recreation area, posed like an admiral on the deck of his destroyer. In his mind's eye, he can see himself coolly flipping the garlic and pepper T-bones on the front acreage of his new grill while carefully testing the citrus tarragon trout fillets that sizzle uh, fragrantly in the rear. On the lawn below, he can see his kids, Haley and Cody, frolicking on the weedless community lawn that's mowed twice weekly by the people who run Monument Crown Preserve, his townhome community. Haley, 12, is a travel team girl who spends her weekends playing midfield against similarly ponytailed, strongly calved soccer marvels. Cody, 10, is a buzz cut boy whose naturally blonde hair has been cut to a lawn-like stubble and dyed an almost phosphorescent white. Cody's wardrobe is entirely derivative of fashions he's seen watching the X Games. In his vision, Patio Man can see the kids enjoying their child-safe lawn darts and a gaggle of their cul-de-sac friends, a happy gathering of Haley's and Cody's and Corey's and Brittany's. It's a brightly colored scene. Abercrombie and Fitch, pink spaghetti strap tops on the girls, and ankle-length canvas shorts and laceless Nikes on the boys. And then he says this. Patio Man notes somewhat uncomfortably that in America today, the average square yardage of boys' fashion grows and grows, while the square inches in the girls' outfits shrink and shrink. So while the boys look like tent-wearing skateboarders, the girls look like preppy prostitutes. Isn't he expressing something that you have felt? Many of us are concerned and frustrated with a culture in which Boys have to be told, pull your pants up. And girls have to be told, put some clothes on. Pastor Kent Hughes says, our society is blatantly sensualistic. Powerful voices in sociology and secular family counseling are promoting new normative definitions of what is acceptable. According to them, there are no constraints in moral questions and personal relationships. All values are on trial. Relationships should last only as long as they are mutually fulfilling, we are told. Access to regular sexual satisfaction should be viewed as a basic human right. 
There is no true humanness devoid of sexuality, and so it goes. The situation is made worse by the fact that the bulk of our national media apparently endorses this thinking. Much of our advertising is based on sexual stimulation. If you wear a certain brand of cologne or drive a particular luxury car, you will suddenly attract a bevy of beautiful supermodels. Popular songs romanticize infidelity. The advent of home video has extended a river of filth into the homes of millions. Just a few generations ago, 23% of females had lost their virginity by age 21. A generation later, it had doubled to nearly half the population. And today, you're considered somewhat weird if you have not had your first sexual encounter in high school. Now, I long ago lost the ability to be shocked by what worldlings think and do. But my greatest concern is the protection and the purity of God's church. And I'm ever aware that the church has the ongoing temptation to mimic the world in its attitudes and its pleasures and its fashions. We want to fit in. When God says, you're to be different. And our Lord's values and our Lord's commands were, and they still are, friends, different. And in the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord Jesus gave 2,000 years ago, he regularly exalts God's standards for holiness. Last week we saw that he calls his followers to avoid hostility and to pursue peace in their relationships. And his requirement extended not just to our actions, but to our thoughts and to our words as well. And in the passage we're going to consider today, Jesus again tells us, what we're to avoid, and what it is we're to pursue. And again, his focus is not just on what we do, but on what we think and what we say about this most important matter of sexuality. Beginning in verse 27. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we believe what we have sung, and what we have prayed, and what we now again acknowledge. You are holy. Lord, we are not in our natural sinful selves. Those of us who name your name, you have called out of the world and to yourself. That means we have been set apart. Your word teaches that you are continually setting us apart to be more like you and less like the world. Help us today as we examine whether in this area of sensuality and sexuality we are more like you and less like the world. I pray that you will convict us of our sin and of our desensitization toward what the world and the culture presents as normative so that we may leave this place better equipped and more committed to be like you in your holiness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus explored 
What it, was that le- what it is that leads to hostility, murder, he says, in verses 21 through 24. And then in verses 25 through 26, he gives some things that we should do to pursue peace. But now he does, beginning in verse 27, the same thing, focusing on what it is that leads to sexual sin. And so I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, I encourage you to retrieve that if you don't have it out already, that first of all, the Lord Jesus is telling us that Christians avoid what leads to sexual sin. Christians avoid what leads to sexual sin. Now, if you were here last week, awake then and perhaps awake now, you'll notice that that first line looks very similar to the first line last week. The first line last week said, Christians avoid what leads to murder. And we have virtually the same outline today because Jesus has structured his words about murder last week and now adultery this week in the same way. He tells us what we avoid and what it is we are to pursue. Christians avoid what leads to sexual sin. Now last week when I talked about murder, I felt fairly secure and feel secure in saying that even a church of moderate size like ours probably has no physical murderers. That no one here in all likelihood has actually committed a homicide. But there is a good chance that this group has adulterers. And we'll see that there's every reason to believe that this room is full of would-be adulterers, heart and mind adulterers. The focus in Jesus' comments is on the sexual sin of adultery. We're going to see that there are other, of course, sexual sins, but he focused on adultery. Now, why is that? Well, adultery is this. Adultery is a married person engaging, engaging in sexual activity with someone other than his or her spouse. Now, Jesus is not focused then here when he says adultery on the activity of unmarried persons. Now, why is that? Because, one, the consequences of adultery are worse in that adultery involves betrayal of another person and the vows that were made to that person before God. Now note, I'm not saying, and as you'll see as we go on, I'm not saying the sin is worse. I'm simply saying the consequences are worse since it involves another person. But then secondly, almost all Jews were married by the age of 20. And so Jesus is, the the main sexual sin that expressed itself was then sin by married persons to people to whom they were not married. And so he addresses adultery. Today, people delay getting married. And people get delay getting married, sometimes for good reasons. I want to have my uh, act together so that I can, if you're a young man, support a wife and so perhaps finish college and perhaps uh, have a job. That would be a good thing. A young man comes to ask for one of my daughter's hand in marriage. I would like to hear that, that you have a plan for how you're going to support her and, and yourself. But there are they're not all good reasons that people delay marriage. One of the reasons today that people delay marriage is because they now believe they can get the benefits of marriage without it, because they engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Another reason is this, that our young men are engaged in what sociologists have called a prolonged adolescence. We have young men well into their 20s and extending into their 30s 
who simply have not grown up. And therefore, having not grown up, are not ready to commit themselves to another person. And so today, people delay getting married, and so they don't technically commit adultery, rather they commit fornication. And fornication is any illicit sexual activity, whether married or not. That word fornication, it's an old word, it's a word found in your King James Version, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4. King James Version says this, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now that same verse in the NIV says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now notice, I want you to notice the colon after the word sanctified. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That word sanctified means be made holy, be set apart. It's God's will that you be made holy, that you be made set apart. Now the colon is then suggesting, here's one of the ways that happens. Here's one of the ways you're set apart, made holy. Namely, you avoid fornication in the NIV, sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage and sex outside of your marriage, if you're married, is sin. The Bible gives two options for sexual expression. And it does go without saying, I trust, that the Bible gives only permission for heterosexual expression. And it only gives two options for that, sex with your spouse or celibacy. Now, how do I know this? You say, where does it say that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, is giving instructions about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage throughout the entire chapter. And in that chapter, he says this, To the unmarried, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Now, he's not saying... You have to stay unmarried. That's not even the norm. It's the exception. But nonetheless, be unmarried as I am is a, is a good state. And so if that's the case with you, don't, don't worry about that. Serve the Lord as I am doing. But notice this now. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, do you see the assumption here? There's only one way for that passion then to be satisfied. And that is within the bounds of marriage. And so it is better to marry. And you have one of two states. You marry or you remain celibate. And those who then are married, let me say, married couples, that God has given you one to the other for a number of reasons, but one of those is for mutual satisfaction in your sexual relationship. And to not engage, unless there's some physical problem that prohibits that, to not engage with your spouse is to, in the words of the Bible, in the King James, defraud. We're going to see the NIV says to deprive one another. Notice what the Bible says. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, the assumption is that sexual expression is within the bounds of marriage. But within marriage, that expression is to take place. And failure to engage in that, for any other than physical reasons, 
beyond your control, is depriving your spouse. Now, if there are any here who are doing that, of course, that would be unknown to any of the rest of us, but known to God. And I'm saying to you that that is a heinous expression of the sorry state of your relationship if you're not engaging physically with your spouse. If that's the case, there are deeper issues in your relationship, and they need to be addressed. And I stand ready, and our church stands ready to help you. So Paul says to the Corinthians, single or married is good, but sexual expression can only be exercised in marriage. And that's why notice the title of this message up at the top of the outline. I say first comes love, then comes marriage, right? Then what comes later, right? Baby carriage. Now, you know, we're just hokey enough to think that's like the order. You know, I, I, <laughs> I'm tempted to have my girls just say, look, I'll pick somebody out for you. And go, first comes marriage, and then if love comes along, that'll be cool, but I'll pick the person out for you. <laughs> but really the way it should go is first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes sex, and then if God so blesses, then come children. That's God's order. But whether it's adultery or fornication, that's the issue. Just as Jesus did with hostility in the prior message last week, Jesus now presses deeper. Just as he forbids the anger that leads to murder, he also forbids all that leads to sexual sin. And that's because God cares about more than just the physical acts. He cares about the heart and its motives. And so I say in your outline, impure thoughts lead to sexual sin. Impure thoughts lead to sexual, sexual sin. Verse 28. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual sins are preceded by sexual thoughts. What we imagine in our minds is put into action with opportunity. Now, notice I say with opportunity. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I fantasize. I think about things, but I've never put it into action. <laughs> well, don't be so sure, one. And secondly, the Lord says it's sin whether you ever put it into action or not. And further, one of the major reasons... Those who think about and imagine and fantasize don't put it into action is simply because they don't have the opportunity. I mean, how many people would know? What would that do to my job? What would that do to my kids? What would that, right? People would talk. That's why strip clubs are always near airports. It's because you're away from all of those constraints. And now who will know now that you're away from home. With the restrictions, we may or may not do the act, but we've nurtured the thoughts that would surely lead to it if the opportunity were presented. And just as murder is preceded by thousands of thoughts of superiority and then of contempt, so sexual sin is no momentary lapse in judgment, friend. We sometimes say that to excuse ourselves. Oh, it was a momentary lapse. Instead, it's the culmination of thought and fantasy, lust, intense desire that's moved to action 
with opportunity. We've seen an example of this in Scripture, none other than King David. And you all know the sin that King David committed with Bathsheba, the wife of another man. He took this woman as king and took her. And he had the authority, the power to take her, not the authority. And sometimes we think of David, you know, the Bible tells us that he saw this woman and she was beautiful and just in an instant, you know, he fell. Forget about it. Here's what 2 Samuel 11 says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent. Now, you ought, that ought to catch your attention. What was David? Well, he would be a king. And in the spring, when kings go off to war, there's a king who's not going off to war. Somebody else is with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. I wonder why. The Bible tells us David sent someone after he saw Bathsheba to find out about her. and He was told who she is and was told that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. King, she's a married woman. But the Bible says, then David sent messengers to get her. David premeditated what he did. And whether he premeditated before not going to war, he certainly premeditated after he saw her. And so one person has said this, the fantasy preceded the act, and that is how it's always been. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. Scripture says this, and our experience confirms it. Our imagination, one of the faculties that distinguishes us from animals, is one of God's wondrous gifts. Through it we dream great dreams. Without it there would be no great works of art or no great achievements of science. But as with any of God's gifts, it must be used responsibly. When abused, the imagination spawns great evil. The most potent, the most powerful sex organ that you possess is your mind. And contrary to modern psychology, which says you can fantasize but not be the thing, if you fantasize about heinous things like pedophilia, you're a pedophile. If you fantasize about adultery, Jesus says you're an adulterer. If you fantasize about illicit sin outside of marriage, then indeed you are sexually sinning. You may not have the means to make it happen, but in God's eyes it has already happened, save only the opportunity. We now live in an age where you can engage in those kinds of fantasies and never have to leave the confines of your home. And you can see images that you can fantasize about on the terminal that is your computer. Back in the day, you had to go to a seedy side of town, purchase a magazine. They would wrap it in brown paper so nobody would see what you were purchasing. And now you simply have a modem, and in the privacy of your home, you can commit adultery and fornication. What am I to do? What are you to do? 
in order to avoid these thoughts that are adultery and fornication before the Lord. Dear friends, the only thing that is the antidote, and I will talk about it at the end of our message, is the cultivation of a relationship with the Lord God so that you care about not just getting caught and not just physical acts, but you care about what he sees. You hear that? You care about what he sees. Well, what does he see? That would be everything. You care how he sees it and whether or not it pleases him. We'll talk to that some more at the end of our time. Impure thoughts lead to sexual sin. In your outline, secondly, impure words lead to sexual sin. Well, the obvious here would be to talk about someone in a sexualized way. So locker room talk, or if we have construction workers here, forgive me, construction worker talk, or you could fill in the occupation, where the talk is about someone in a sexualized way. Obviously, that fits this category of words that violate Jesus' principle. It's one thing, though, friends, to acknowledge someone as being beautiful or being handsome, and another thing to begin to describe why, and physical features about that person. Men and ladies, young people, older people, any of us, if you engage in that, you're violating Jesus' principle. Ephesians 5 says this, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, because this is improper for God's notice, holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place for us Christians. And so let me make some recommendations to you. That in your words you be very, very, very careful about what you say to members of the opposite sex. I have a policy for decades. I never make a commentary ever about a woman's appearance. I never say that outfit, that outfit really befits you, or something along those lines. Never. I'll allow your husband to say that if you're married. I'll allow the women to say that. I'll allow my wife to say that. I don't say that. How many times have pastors, how many times do we have to read pastors getting in trouble? Before we learn the lesson that we must avoid, yes, in our thoughts, but then in our words as well, those things that lead to sexual immorality. We cannot be too careful. If you're someone who enjoys flirting and just the turn of phrase and the banter, can I recommend to you in the strongest terms, stop flirting. You say, you know, when the waitress comes, I've seen guys do this. And they're just, you know, bantering back and forth and the kind of flirtatious stuff that goes on. Often married men, but sometimes unmarried men. And even for unmarried men, let me ask you a question. Uh, by the way, is that gal saved <laughs> that's bringing you your food? Did you get her testimony as part of that? Because, see, here's the deal. You're only looking, here's my assumption, you're only looking for followers of Jesus. So here's my suggestion. Find out if she or he is a follower of Jesus first, then talk. 
Impure words lead to sexual sin. You cannot be too careful. Avoid what leads to sexual sin. And then I say in your outline, impure, of course, actions lead to sexual sin. What are those actions? Again, there's the obvious. There's engaging actions of pornography. And if you have a problem with pornography, pornography can can grip you. It can addict you. And if that's happening, this is a place, this church is a place where it is safe to be a sinner, but it's not okay to sin. And so, dear friend, I urge you, see me, see a leader in this church, and we will do our level best to see God's grace implemented in your life to help you with that. But beyond that, beyond the the more obvious, are the more subtle, kind of touchy things that go on. You ever met somebody who you just go, you know, he's a little touchy. Men, we're not a little touchy. We're not touchy at all, except with our wives if we're married. Anybody ever heard the term photage? That is just uh, the purposeful but very subtle bumping into someone, rubbing against someone. Actions that lead to sexual sin. But what about how you present yourself? What about how you dress? And what you communicate by how you dress about where your desires are and what it is you are advertising? Many actions that lead to sexual sin. And all of this may seem antiquated and all too restrictive, But you know, dear friends, it goes back a long way to the very beginning where God said in the second chapter of Genesis these words, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Those words are packed with meaning. Daniel Doriani says that this famous verse speaks of three kinds of loyalty in the marriage relationship. The first one is exclusive loyalty. A man will leave his father and mother. Exclusive loyalty. Father, mother, and the dearest friends take second place to the marriage relationship. And then there's a second kind of loyalty. It's lifelong loyalty. Husband and wife are united to one another for the remainder of their natural lives, according to God. They are united. That's a strong translation of a strong Hebrew word that means to be bound together like glue. And then there is thirdly, physical loyalty. Husband and wife become one flesh. They express and seal the union of their hearts and minds with the union of their bodies. So there's exclusive loyalty, lifelong loyalty, physical loyalty. By its very nature, physical love is a life-uniting act. God intended it to be a sign and seal of the union of two lives. Casual sex is a misnomer. Sex is no mere bodily function. Our bodies are us. One author said, when two bodies are united, two persons are united. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. Therefore, the trouble with extramarital sex is that it is a life-uniting act committed without life-uniting intent. 
It is not just adultery. It is a thieving lie. Intimacy is a sign and seal of the union of two lives, but outside of marriage, the act and the intent clash. Intimacy of body and intimacy of soul go together, and that is why adultery, as well as other sexual relations outside of marriage, is wrong. When one engages in sexual activity with another, you're giving a part of yourself to him or her. So why is it that now, in our day and age, people can seemingly ignore the unifying effect of sexual relations and replace it with hookups and one-night stands? Especially males, but increasingly females. Girls gone wild. Well, let me explain briefly why. There used to be, believe it or not, there used to be laws in all 50 states prohibiting adultery. As a society breaks the restraints of traditional mores, standards that go back literally millennia, as a society does that, then people become hardened and the natural tendencies are muted and desensitized and then ultimately deadened. And so now that which was meant to unite permanently one soul to another soul is something that can be done casually. In the words of that great theologian, Paul Simon, you can just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. No need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and set yourself free. Or in the words of those other great theologians, Supertramp. Goodbye, Mary. Goodbye, Jane. Will we ever meet again? Feel no sorrow. Feel no shame. Come tomorrow. Feel no pain. That's the culture we live in. Christians avoid what leads to sexual immorality. In your outline, secondly, Christians pursue what leads to purity. Christians pursue what leads to purity, pursuing purity at all costs. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So next week, there will be a bunch of people here with leader dogs and white canes. <laughs> now, how do we know Jesus didn't literally mean gouge out your eyes? Well, here's one of the reasons. His first followers didn't do that. But Jesus is using extreme language to say, at all costs, you avoid this. And if your temptation is coming through the eye, then you behave as, we, as if you didn't have one. And you turn away, and you avert yourself, and you go a different direction. It's what we call the replacement principle. 
You replace what it is that is tempting you to sin with something pure. You feast your eyes on other things, on godly things. Job said this, righteous Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. That's a good covenant. Oh, Lord God. Those of us who have daughters, be able to find men who've done that? Mm. Begin praying now, friends, that God would protect someone for your child. Begin praying now that God would protect your child for someone. And begin behaving in a way that models that kind of protection for your children. At all costs. Put it away. Get rid of it. I've been to the homes of people in our church, and it's so edifying. To see someone with their computer, like right out in a conspicuous place. And it's actually out in a place where you go, that's a weird place for your computer. And they say, I've had families in our church say, that, I know that's a weird place for our computer. They volunteer it. But we do that because we have no secrets here. We don't hide what we're doing. You got a family who hides what they're doing. Men, do you hide what you're doing? Can your wife pick up your phone anytime, your smartphone, to see what you're doing? Can she get on your computer? Is it locked down with passwords and all of that? Pursue purity at all costs. And then Jesus is teaching, pursue purity in all circumstances. At all costs and in all circumstances, verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, the same principle. If the temptation is coming through the eye, then act as if you didn't have one. Look away. Look at other things, pure things. And if it's by places you go with your feet or things you do with your touch, then act as though you had no feet and no hands. Now, what's the antidote? What's the answer to all of this stuff? Jesus is very clear that his standard is greatly beyond just the act. But it's the thoughts, it's the words, it's the actions that lead to the ultimate act, even if we never have opportunity to fulfill it. Fulfill those desires. The antidote, the answer is this. The answer to lust is contentment. The answer to lust is contentment. You see, because at the heart of lust is a lack of contentment with where I am or with who I'm with. The answer to lust is contentment. If you are single... Paul counsels, 1 Corinthians 7, be content in your state as I am and be used of God as I am being used. Unless and until God has marriage for you, contentment in your state as a servant of God. And if you're married, it means to be content with the spouse that God has given you. Now, when I say be content with the spouse that God has given you, I didn't say be pleased with the spouse God has given you. I didn't say be happy with the spouse God has given you. 
I didn't say be overjoyed with the spouse. I didn't say lie about your spouse and talk about what a wonderful person they are if, in fact, they're a pain in the neck. It would be a marvelous thing if those of you who have strained relationships would seek counsel and that those relationships could be harmonized. But that may not happen, and that certainly can't be guaranteed because it requires two people to participate and cooperate. But what you can do is be content with the spouse, now hear this, that God has given. And the spouse you have is the spouse that God has given. And we're going to see next week, that is the spouse you stay with. Why next week? Because Jesus addresses on the heels of adultery the issue of divorce. And he says divorce is not God's plan. And so the antidote to both adultery and and then ultimately to divorce and the disillusion of a marriage is contentment with the spouse that God has given, trusting not the spouse, but trusting the God who has placed you in a home with that particular spouse. When you say, I've got to get out, here's what you're saying, I don't trust God. And so I'm not content with what God has given. Paul said to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let me give you some suggestions very briefly. I've already given some along the way and then we'll be done. Friends, if we are going to avoid what leads to sexual immorality, if we're going to pursue that which leads us toward purity, and we need to do a few things. One is keep away from temptation. Keep away from books, from movies, from websites, from magazines, from people that lead you into temptation. If you are with people, if you're reading junk, if you're watching junk, if you're dialing up junk on your computer, then don't be surprised that you are succumbing to sexual sin. In fact, in the, those very acts, you're committing sexual sin, says Jesus. So keep away from those things. Get rid of them. Jesus says radically amputate them from your life. But then also tell someone who can hold you accountable. Do you have a Christian brother or sister who loves you enough to hold you accountable for this? If not, then there's a deeper problem. You're not engaged. You're not engaged with the body of Christ the way you need to be. And so we need to pair you with someone who can hold you accountable, that can ask you hard questions. What did you do on that business trip? What are you doing with your computer? And then, if need be, seek counsel as well. Now, what if I have grievously sinned with this? And we've all said we've all sinned with it. But I'm someone who this is speaking to me. And God is convicting me. Well, what do I do? Thanks be to God. 1 John 1, 1.9 says this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And you'll have opportunity to do that. To take home truth at the bottom of your outline is the same as it was last week. Christians cultivate Godly desires for others. Let's bow together.
Our Father, our Holy Father, thank you for caring about my holiness. Thank you for caring about our holiness as your people, as your church. And Lord, we know why you care about our holiness. It's because ultimately you care about yours and your reputation. And you've called us to represent you. The stakes could not be higher. Adultery causes great pain on the horizontal level because it betrays the trust of another to whom we have given our vow. But Lord, all sin and all sexual sin ultimately betrays you. You have told us in your word that you have betrothed us to one husband, that is Christ, and your church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, we must be holy people. And so, Father, thank you that you have called us to be your holy people, and thank you that you care that we are, in fact, those holy people. And so thank you for instructing us in your word. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you when you walk the earth that you preach this sermon. It cuts right to my heart, right to our hearts. And though 2,000 years ago is as current as today's newspaper. Because, Lord, these are the problems that we're afflicted with and that we struggle with every moment of every day. And yet you have given us the antidote in your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who preached this and the Lord Jesus who lived this holiness and the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We thank you that when we come to him, we can be made new. You are making us new every moment of every day. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word and your holy people. Oh, Lord, help us to leave this place better, better equipped, better resolved to be your holy people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.